0: Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Mark Lesser. Mark is currently the CEO of ZBA Associates, an executive development and leadership consulting company. He was the founding CEO of the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute and helped develop the world-renowned Search Inside Yourself program within Google, a mindfulness-based emotional intelligence training for leaders which teaches the art of integrating mindfulness, emotional intelligence, and business savvy. He's also the author of four books, including Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, Lessons from Google, and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. He was a resident of the San Francisco Zen Center for 10 years and director of Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, the first Zen monastery in the Western world. Mark, thanks for taking the time to join us today. How are you doing? I'm good. Nice to see you both. Rick, Forrest, beautiful. Yeah, it's great to have you here with us today. One of the first questions that I want to start with, and I think as a good way of kind of introducing you to the podcast listenership, could you explain how you went from practicing at a Zen center to getting your MBA from NYU? I I went from taking
1: a one-year leave of absence from Rutgers to that one year turned into 10 years at the Zen center. And... One of the big surprises about living at the Zen Center was how important work was, and how often I I got asked to be in leadership roles. Mm-hmm. And well, my my ninth year, I was the the head cook of this uh, aftasahara, which was a, a a pretty awesome and daunting job, especially in the summertime when this monastery turns into a resort and there's 70 or 80 overnight guests. Mm. And there's this kind of high expectation about producing gourmet quality vegetarian food. And then the following year, I was asked to be the director of Tasahara. And that's when it really dawned on me that though I thought of myself as a Zen student, that I was running a business and, mm. that, and that I was in a leadership role. And also I was enjoying it a lot. I was enjoying and learning so much from this kind of integration of awareness practice, mindfulness practice, practice of caring for people and getting things done and managing people and being responsible for budgets. And I kind of wondered, like, why isn't everyone doing this? It just made so much sense to me that it would be good for business, good for humans. Good for society. And I thought, well, I, I think this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And it seemed natural that I, uh, I had just had 10 years of, you know, mindfulness training, Zen training, and really didn't know that much about business. So decided to get an MBA degree. Mm. That's, that's what led me back to finish my undergraduate work at Rutgers and go right into NYU business school.
2: When I think of uh, Tassajara, Mark, for me, it's kind of a visionary Shangri-La kind of place. I've been around a lot of meditation centers. I've actually never been to Tassajara. It's certainly place I want to go to. But it's remoteness, the hot springs, the Zen rigor. There's a lot of drama somehow in a good way, in my mind, uh, associated with it. And I wondered if there were one or two super duper stories you could tell about Tassajara, that had lessons for you in them.
1: Yeah, so many stories. It's funny what you're saying reminds me of a of a story that's in me that that last time I did a public lecture. So Sunday mornings is kind of the public lecture time at Green Gulch. They usually get 150, maybe 200 people come, and and all of these Zen places. There is, as you were saying, there's a kind of Drama to them. There's a there's a culture of making things sort of bigger than life. So, the last time I spoke at Green Gulch, my neighbor, one of my uh, neighbors who I live with, brought her seven year old daughter. And so, my neighbor and seven year old daughter are sitting in the back, and I walk in. I'm doing the lecture. I'm wearing my robes. There's there's a huge bell that's rung rhythmically to call people into the hall. As the bell is kind of winding down, I walk in with my robes and there's someone standing behind me carrying incense and we walk into the room and we do bows to this Buddha and I go up to the front of the room and everyone's sitting there quietly and then there's this chant that happens. And as I start to speak, my neighbor's seven-year-old turns to her mother and says, Mom, is our neighbor God? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I, I don't know what she said but what I hope she said is something like yes and we're all God and I think that Tassahara, there's something about the culture of that place and the remoteness of it and the practice that it somehow takes the ordinary world And transforms it into something extraordinary. And so part of my part of my experience, and and why in the the subtitle of my book, you know, Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen, was I always felt something something extraordinary about working in that kitchen and the culture in the kitchen and its ability to take the ordinary, cutting carrots, working with knives. You know, cooking rice, making eggs. And yet there is a sense that there is something more than just cutting carrots and using knives and making hard boiled eggs. There's a certain attitude of care, of service, of working together to produce extraordinary results without any sense of grasping at it or judgment about it. So there's something about the core practice at Tassahara is in in the meditation hall of just sitting. This sense of just sitting. And Rick, I steal from everyone, but I steal uh, uh, regularly from your your teaching. And I I often talk about meditation as being the practice of cultivating safety, satisfaction, and connection, and that. In a profound way, in a, in a, ra- a radical sense of safety, a radical sense of that there's nothing needed right now. I don't, I, I, there's nothing I'm lacking right now. And that sense of connection, that sense of connectedness with the people, with my knife, with my carrots. And so there's something about taking that, that spirit, that practice, of meditation and bringing it into the world of work. And so I've always felt that there is something, something about the almost the magic of bringing that practice spirit of the this ordinary act of just sitting, just sitting meditation and then bringing that in into the world of work. And when I found myself, Not so long ago, but many years after that time in Tassahara, standing in front of rooms of Google engineers teaching mindfulness and emotional intelligence. The challenge for me was how to, how to translate, how to bring that spirit that I felt like I had been so enmeshed in, in the Tassahara Zendo, in the, in the meditation hall, in the kitchen, and how to bring that in to the world of a big tech company like Google—that's
2: great, thank you.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting how you refer to it as a kind of spirit and a group of traits that were really forwarded at Tosahara. How you were talking about that connectedness to both the knife and the carrot, both the object of action and the receiver of the action. But as you said toward the end of it, the word that most people would use to articulate that feeling kind of commonly, or at least I should say the word that's in kind of the common conception is mindfulness, which is where you landed kind of at the end of it. And I suppose what I would like to ask here is, were there challenges for you in trying to take that big spirit that you're referring to and compress it down to kind of the understood word of mindfulness in that more broad corporate context?
1: Yeah, what's interesting is... In my time of living at the Zen Center, the word mindfulness wasn't used that much. I mean, we did, we did study in some of the early teachings of, uh, the Buddha, the, you know, the, the mindfulness sutra and talking about the, the four foundations of mindfulness. But that was, that was not, a, that was an important, important piece of writing, but not central by, any, by any means. And what I liked about the work that I did At Google and the work that I do in the business world is tying mindfulness to emotional intelligence. And they're both, they're both these enormous bodies of work. So I I was never like, I think you used the word compressed. I never felt like I was trying to compress it. I was always trying to, if anything, open up that mindfulness is a lifelong practice that involves cultivating attitudes like Kindness and curiosity right in the midst of challenges, difficulties, difficult situations, difficult people. So to me, there's something about the, the ongoing transformation of meeting change, meeting difficulty. And how do we transform the ordinary world? How do we open up to pain, difficulty, challenges and elevate them into Kindness, compassion, connection, safety, satisfaction. Yeah, and and to me, it's part of it. Is it starts with I think naming it and opening up one's vocabulary and, and awareness to the possibility, to even thinking that this could be possible.
2: So, Mark, I have kind of a slightly long-winded question, and I'll try to keep the wind to a minimum. <laughs> In essence. I'm struck immediately by the juxtaposition of the feeling that's at such the heart, as you describe Zen, including, I think, especially its Soto Zen Origins that you're very rooted in, of no gaining idea, just sitting, just sitting, disengaged, a different way of putting the same thing, from the second ennobling truth in Buddhism of craving, disengaging from craving, in part on the basis of, as I would put it, Resting in the green zone of feeling resourced to meet challenges, to needs, without being disturbed by the process, and also really resting in a very deeply felt and hardwired sense of needs met enough already. In other words, a felt sense of peace and contentment and love. Okay, deep stuff. How do we juxtapose the feeling of no gaining mind with ordinary business life, which is saturated with gaining of various kinds, including appropriately, you know, duties to shareholders, generating profit, having a business a year from now that can keep the lights on for the many people whose livelihoods depend upon it, etc. Wanting to bring new products to market, wanting to expand market share, frankly, wanting to compete and win. And in a zero-sum framework, often in which our winning means they're losing. So how do, we, how do we juxtapose that? And this goes to the slightly long-winded question here, which is, I think of the movement of emotional intelligence and mindfulness into the workplace as having sort of like level one and level two about it. Level one, perfectly legitimate, helping people become less stressed and more able to regulate their emotional and impulsive reactions to things for their own sake and frankly, for the sake of the other people around them, that they don't impact others so much. Okay. Then there's level two, bringing in this material into the domain of work. And it reminds me of my experience with the Zen Bakery 35 years ago in San Francisco. I went there one time with friends. You would be aware of this place. It was an adjunct of San Francisco Zen Center. It struck me as in a really fairly tacky kind of place. And we went there sort of to visit it almost like tourists. And it just was a small hole in the wall where you get coffee and donuts and stuff like that. And I just watched the people who worked there, most of whom had shaved heads or very short hair, and they were bustling about filling the half-and-half jugs and replacing the coffee urns and, you know, busting dishes. And yet they did so in a completely serene and self-collected present moment kind of way. And it was extremely striking to me that they were using, running a little dinky coffee shop, you know, bakery place, as a form of practice and very deep practice. Uh, they they probably didn't care that much actually about making donuts per se, but wow, did they care about their relationship to the process of making donuts? So that's kind of like level two. And I wonder if you could speak to that. You know, how you think about it and even how you teach about it. All right, that's the end of my wind. Yeah, so I
1: think two things. Yes, I think it's a beautiful paradox. I think not only in Zen, but I I think in the human life, this thing about gaining and not gaining. And one way that I've been thinking about it of late is thinking about searching and finding. And that anyone who's in this kind of mindfulness world, and I think, I think anyone who sees themselves as a learner, and I think it's important that we all be learners, and there's a sense of searching. That we're always searching. We're always wanting to improve. We're wanting to develop. We're wanting to grow, blah, blah, blah. But I think there's something I think mindfulness practice or Zen practice introduces this concept of what I've been calling finding that you can also relax and just give up the search, just experience what it's like. And again, it's similar, Rick, to what you teach. To allow yourself to give up the search and just in a way it's like to be found, maybe it's not even finding, it's being found, resting in a sense of there's nothing lacking right now. And that experience, I think, can in a unexplainable way, completely change the search. Right. Then you go back, you get, you, you get, you know, you go back into the world of searching, but, but you're transformed. There's this beautiful expression that I love in Zen, you know, mountains are mountains, mountains are not mountains, and mountains are mountains that you start with the ordinary world of searching, but then you are through practice, through life, through meeting difficulties, you're, you're transformed. And part of that transformation, I think, is the experience of being found, of kind of completing the search in some, in some way. And, but then you go back to the ordinary world of searching, but it's now, you know, mountains look like mountains, but they've been transformed. And maybe that's similar to my response to the second point that you raise about the level one and level two. So I think. What I'm describing here, this kind of transformative process, I think is a level two kind of practice, level two kind of process. Level one, as you say, is more even just starting by asking these questions about what's what's important. How do I create context? How do I create story? Maybe my discomfort isn't all their fault. Maybe I have some part in it gee, what's my role in my own pain? As a leader, if if my team isn't functioning the way I want it to, what changes do I need to make so that my team can function more effectively?
2: So Mark, what knocks you out of the sense of feeling found, as it were? And what do you do to return as soon as you can to this Place?
1: Again, I think it's a transformative process. You know, I live in the ordinary world, right? You know, here, you know, the ordinary world of trying to get my microphone working, <laughs> the ordinary world of like, what's for lunch today? And yeah, scheduling all that stuff. But I, I, I like to think that within that, within that ordinary world, there's something extraordinary about it. And of course, so maybe sometimes it's toggling back and forth. So yes, I think in my, my daily meditation practice, I think of it as a practice of being found again and again with every, with every breath. At least that's my, you know, that's my aspiration in reality. You know, I have a monk, my monkey mind operates quite, quite well and it's easy for me to get distracted and My practice, my aspiration is to come back and let all that go and just, just be, just be found, just be found, just let everything go with every, every exhale that I need that. I need that daily reminder. And I find, I find in my executive coaching practice, I feel like part of that is putting aside. I have to just show up. And, in a sense, allow myself to be found to just be there with another person and just completely be present so it's about it's about my own presence that i I aspire to bring into my coaching practice, or if I'm in front of a room doing a training or giving a talk, I feel like I get to put all that completely to use all of that practice, and again, to see, oh, you know. Right now I'm I'm judging myself. I'm feeling I'm feeling self-critical. That's interesting. Probably be good to note that,
0: let it go, show up. So inside of the as we were referring to a little bit earlier, relatively cutthroat world of business operations of various kinds which are often the zero sum game that Rick was describing before, you've referred to a lot of personal wellness benefits from mindfulness practices of various kinds or just various practices of emotional intelligence and self-exploration and so on to sort of broaden the field a little bit here. But to that bureaucracy that's running, to that profit-driven organization, what are the benefits to them of having more mindful leaders? Like, put very, very simply, why should Google pay somebody to do that kind of work? Right up until this uh, our our conversation,
1: I was on a call with a, a CEO of a multi-billion dollar company who is in a business that you might think is a cutthroat business. And it's so, it was so beautiful how much he totally gets the importance of awareness, mindfulness, emotional intelligence. And he is. Just absolutely convinced that it's the secret sauce of the success of his business. That all the other companies that are just looking at the numbers, you know, and that use, you know, hammers as as their method of getting people motivated, his experience over, and he's been doing this a long time, is that it is such an advantage and 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 i would say that i think i think companies like google get that and again there's many motivations there's a whole host of motivations some very wholesome and some less wholesome a lot of people are convinced that you have to be that way or you it's a you know it's a doggy dog world out there but i think it's changing i think it was yesterday on the front page of the new york times there was an article about 200 CEOs of major companies made this declaration. Now it's again, it's easy to be skeptical about this, but as we should be. And I also think it's pretty interesting that this group of CEOs signed a declaration that they were, they're committed to taking care of employees, committed to the values and needs of community and society beyond just producing shareholder value, which has been the, I think, one of the underlying things that has been a real detriment, I think, to people and planet. Now, of course, there's big gaps, but just, I think there's something, I, I think something pretty wonderful about Just even just starting with naming that intention.
2: Hmm. This feeds into the question I've got here, which basically poses the critique. So modern mindfulness movement, now featured on the cover of Time magazine and all the rest of that, tends to get two kinds of critiques. One kind of critique is that when you extract mindfulness, and I'll just leave it at mindfulness for the moment here, when you extract mindfulness from its traditions and its traditional connection, very intimate interwoven connection with ethics and wisdom, it's not really mindfulness anymore. It's unmoored, which then in the second critique enables unmoored mindfulness to be manipulated by large corporations and the culture to sort of patch up their workers or drive more greed, greed, greed which therefore in some ways enables not really addressing the root of the problem, which is the excesses of capitalism in the 21st century. Okay. And therefore, as part of this critique, pursues, and I've been on the receiving end occasionally of versions of it or a little bit of a brushback there, those like you or me or us who are involved in this world are just cogs in this evil machine. Well,
1: two things. W- one is that to me, the sword or whatever that that cuts through all of that is caring, is caring, you know, and that whether you call it mindfulness or emotional, like to me, th- that at its heart, I think is what I'm, I'm aspiring to, to bring in to, whether it's us you know any place any company that i'm working with and it's harder than it sounds right it's hard it's not it's like oh yeah that's no it's not easy partly because we're in a, a framework of capitalism and so to me this is the the larger picture but also i think the it's a macro and micro and and the the connecting point right so in a sense i was just referring to these 200 CEOs and essentially they said we commit to being more caring right that 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 in a sense you know on one end of the capitalism spectrum is right it's all about shareholder wealth to hell with caring to hell with the planet like wealth 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 that's all it is like well we're seeing unfortunately we're seeing what happens with that on a on many levels on the Disparity of, of wealth and of the environment and of the, the, I think from the opioid crisis to just, it's, it's, it's killing us that, that version of capitalism without caring. So I think that the challenge is on, again, on all levels is how to bring in a a different kind of caring to it. So, yes. So if you, if you bring in mindfulness without caring. If you bring it in as just another capitalistic tool to get the most out of your workers, well, that would be unfortunate. And of of course, of course, that is happening in certain ways that, you know, there are certain people that there will always be people that want to manipulate the system. There's a shadow side to everything. And we should be conscious and aware of the, the shadow side of of mindfulness. But I don't think we should throw it out because of the shadow side. We should keep keep doing the, you know, fighting the good fight of
0: helping people to bring more a sense of care to their work and lives. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful way to frame it, Mark. So to maybe give kind of a concrete example here to kind of let people into the room a little bit, when you're at You know, insert company here. You're at Google, you're talking to some extremely high level CEO. What is kind of the most common question that you get asked, or the most common problem that those people are seeking for you to help them address? And what are some of the most common tools that you generally teach people when you're having these conversations? I I did
1: immediately think of the most often asked question. By, by Google engineers is what is the least amount of time I can meditate and have it make a
0: difference? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. We're trying to get very succinct, very well,
1: sharp. But, well, they, it's like, show me the data. Yeah, what's the, absolutely. What's,
0: what's, what's, what's the data?
1: And, and my, my answer to that question has become one breath a day. Take one aware, mm. caring, mindful breath each day. Harder than it seems. Try it. Like, see if at the end of the day, did I did I remember? Did I remember to do it? And then before you go to bed, you can always say, okay, I've I've right now,
2: one breath. I'm even more ambitious. I'd set the threshold at a minute, <laughs> a minute or more a day. Not just you, one you breath. Know, a minute yeah. usually has about five or ten breaths.
1: Yes. Yes. I, I, I think in a way the question that Rick asked earlier is one of the real, real challenges, real stumbling. This question this thing about attainment and not attainment. And And I can remember meeting with the CEO. He had a copy of my book called Less, Accomplishing More by Doing Less. And he says to me, I love this book. I'm so glad you wrote it, but I'm not letting my employees read your book. (laughs) (laughs) With caring comes passion. With passion comes people will do anything to make your company more you know more successful more effective so to me this is that i think this is one of the great uh, paradoxes right of meditation what's the role of and I, I i think this is why there's so much curiosity i think in asia about this idea that Mindfulness or meditation has some role in the world of work and the world of business because they've, they've been seen forever as being so separate. But this to me was the, the gift, the unexpected gift that I feel like I received at working in a Zen monastery. And that to some degree, Rick, I think you, you experienced, uh, you know, at the Tassahara bread bakery, you know, that they weren't just filling up the half and half right they were they were practicing in some way so i think i think first that it, it um you kind of have to it, 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 these practices are somewhat paradoxical and and i always say you know like like the you know like the buddha said don't don't believe what i say try it try it see see how doing these practices impacts your experience. Now, I have to say people really get it as soon as you get people to do a little bit of listening practice, a little bit of listening to each other, people discover right away how rarely they're actually listening. And this is I think a I found a very potent and effective way in to helping people to get a taste of these of mindfulness practices is to get people just to spend a few minutes listening to another person, noticing what they're saying, perhaps radical idea, noticing what they're feeling, right? Can you be aware what the tone is, what the feeling element is underneath the words? And it's so, I think for a lot of people, doing this, especially in a work environment, just is a real opens a lot of doors to what might be possible in leadership, in team building, in communication.
2: Wow, that's great.
0: I would like to close with a final question that we ask basically everyone who comes on the podcast. And we've referred a little bit back to times earlier in your life when you were at school, when you were at the Zen Center, whatever it might be. And I just want to ask if you had the opportunity to go back in time and speak to yourself as a young adult, somebody going through those experiences, what would you want to say several several points came
1: into my mind but but one was i was i remember being in college at Rutgers. I was a freshman. I was probably eighteen years old, and I doubted myself a lot and i I remember how How hard I had to work to get a B in pre-med biology. And I came to the conclusion that I wasn't smart enough to be a doctor, but beyond in retrospect, I'm quite pleased that I didn't become a doctor. I I think, (laughs) but that person, I, I I would say, trust, trust yourself. Just, just trust yourself. Trust. Go for it. Really just. Allow yourself to
0: open, expand, live your life. Beautiful. Yeah, that's a really lovely sentiment, Mark. And thank you. Truly. And a um, I, I think a wonderful note to close this episode of the podcast on. So again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Do, do we have to close? Come on. I we just <laughs> It's like we just got started.
1: No, absolutely. <laughs> Anyhow, thank you both very much. I really appreciate the
0: time and the opportunity and just Come on, beautiful. Yeah, Yeah, likewise, Mark. No, thank you so much. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Mark Lesser. We began the conversation by talking with Mark about his time at Tassahara in the San Francisco Zen Center. Mark really emphasized the unique quality that the Zen practitioners brought to very everyday tasks, and how that quality was something that he really sought to bring into the business world in his future work. He particularly emphasized for a while the value of not having a gaining idea and how by removing ourselves from that sense of underlying craving, we can become much more effective in our everyday life. We then talked for a while about his time working with Google and other large companies and the value of various kinds of mindfulness practice and spacious awareness, including emotional intelligence, to large companies. He shared some rebuttals to some of the common critiques of mindfulness in the workplace, including how many companies might simply use mindfulness practices as a mechanism for driving their workforce to simply work harder and generate more value for their shareholders. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and maybe even leave a positive rating and review. It really does help us out. Also, if you're interested, Dr. Hansen has a new online program. It's called Neurodharma. It's a truly wonderful offering. And if you're interested in it, I'll leave a link to it in the description of today's podcast. That's it for today's episode. Until next time, thanks for listening.